As Alvin mentioned in his introduction and welcome this morning, we've been looking at Isaiah's servant songs. Four unique passages in this ancient prophet's writing that focus on somebody that Isaiah identifies as God's servant. And each of the songs in their unique way describes um, certain characteristics of God's servant who he will send, who Israel came to understand as their, their Messiah, someone who was, who was chosen a long, long time ago, but we, we get a glimpse of the character and the nature of the servant in his purposes. And we get a glimpse, a deeper glimpse, as we always do when we come to the scriptures of the character of God, who God is, and the ways of God in the world. We, a few weeks ago, we looked at the gentle and patient servant. We've looked at the called servant, and last, night, last week Nick talked about really the servant as disciple. And today we really focus on the suffering servant. This is a, an enormous text this morning, and it's enormously important and familiar text to many Christians. We often hear the center of our faith as this is read like we did this morning. And when we listen to Isaiah prophesy about this coming of the, sermon, of the servant, we have to come to terms with the kind of Savior that God is sending us. We have to be prepared to recognize that the kind of Savior that we would come up with on our own, the kind of Savior that we would design and that we would caricature, needs some kind of transformation, some kind of alteration. And so the line that we have been, been using repetitively throughout this theme in Isaiah's servant has been, we are looking at the Savior that we need instead of the Savior that we think we need or that we want or that we would design according to our own deepest desires. The first thing about this passage and Isaiah's servant here is that this is a passage that describes intense suffering. This is something that needs to be named right up front. It cannot be avoided in any way, shape, or form. It is not just one of several themes. It is the central theme. And even as Lorna was reading earlier, the, the piece that caught my attention, yet again, even though I've been in this text for many years and more recently in a little more focused way, is that the servant was beaten beyond recognition. This is a horrific crucifixion. This is an example of horrific physical torture. This is the complete degradation of a human being, spiritually, relationally, physically. The complete degradation of a human being. And in this description of the suffering of the servant, Isaiah seems to feel the need to go into sort of multi-layers of description of the servant. He doesn't seem to be happy with just sort of capturing it by, 
by one word or one phrase. He needs more time and more space and more prophecy and more poetry to describe the servant and to describe the various, and what he achieves in doing that is he describes the various levels of suffering. Almost like he's reaching out to his listeners and saying, whatever kind of suffering you've experienced, this person has experienced your suffering. And so we hear rejected and despised. We hear pierced and crushed. We hear wounded. We hear about the suffering of his soul. If that isn't a gut-wrenching line, there never was one. And then the second characteristic of this passage is that it moves uniquely from suffering to something like success or salvation. In most of our Bibles, this section is entitled, The Suffering and the Glory of the Servant. And indeed, if you go back and if you look closely in Jesus' own teaching ministry, it seems pretty clearly that he associated the glory of God with the suffering of the Son. That the glory of God or the power of God or the salvation or the success or the grandeur of God can actually only really be fully revealed in the death of the Son. This seems like a kind of an odd narrative, but for those of us who have been Christians for a while, it does seem to be the narrative that we've been given. That somehow our celebration of resurrection has to go through the degradation and the horror of the cross. It doesn't seem like there's any other way to sort of write that story. And so, weaved into this description of horror and torture and pain and suffering, we get these lines of healing and salvation. He took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. His punishment brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. He was pierced and crushed for our sins. Just about everything that we've experienced, just about everything that we will experience, has been looked after, has been paid for, has been dealt with, has been set anew, has been renewed and refreshed, forgiven, healed. I like what Thomas Kelly, the American theologian, says about glory. He says, marks of glory are upon all things, and these marks are always cruciform and blood-stained. Marks of glory are on all things, but these marks of glory are always in the shape of the cross and stained with blood. And so Isaiah gets at that tension. He gets at that seeming contradiction in this passage. And it's meant to stop us in our tracks to reflect soberly. It's meant to disturb us in a way. It's meant to get our attention. It's meant to get us to struggle with this tension of God's purposes through the Messiah, through the servant. 
And it's meant to make us enormously grateful for the way in which God's love flows mingled down through the death of Jesus. The season of Lent is a season of repentance, to be sure. But it's also a season of remembering. It's a season of gratitude. It's a season of renewal. Because when we begin with Isaiah's coaching to focus on the death and the torture and the suffering of the servant, we recognize the nature of God's love for us in a way that we cannot access access without it. We recognize that our salvation comes at a great cost, comes in a way that we don't deserve, comes in a way that we could not achieve on our own, apart from God's love and God's grace. A third thing that this passage does for us is it invites us into the age-old conversation about suffering itself. You cannot read about something that is so universally, universally real for human beings and not begin to struggle. You, you can write off a lot of topics in human life, but the suffering of human beings is a topic that most people most of the time are not ready to write off. And if they are, then they're found to be quite shallow and immature and even not quite fully human and certainly not quite fully Christian. Because suffering of Jesus and because of the suffering of people is at the center of our story then and at the center of our lives and our story now. Suffering is one of the big questions in the, to- in the, in the uh, it's a major topic in an area known as the philosophy of religion, which is kind of a formal section of the whole philosophy world. The philosophy of religion deals with, and has for ages dealt with, with several key questions. Is there a God? What kind of God do we believe in? What's the definition of a human being? What's the purpose of human life? And always in the top small list of age-old classic questions in the philosophy of the religion is, what is the purpose of suffering? And how do we reconcile the goodness of God in a world filled with suffering? How do we reconcile the power of God in a world of suffering. Why doesn't a good God, let's just put it out there, why doesn't a good God who is also armed with all of the power God needs do something to change that suffering? When you get into this level, when you get into this kind of worry, it can take you to some troublesome places. And so we've tried to deal with this question, this last question about the tension between the goodness and the power of God and the very real nature of the presence of evil and human suffering. There have been all kinds of approaches to this, both formally and informally. One is the God never makes mistakes, that all suffering is part of God's perfect plan for life. Another approach is let freedom 
dominate everything, that God gives human beings free will. And in the exercise of our free will, we have chosen to live and to think, to act in a way which has invited the possibility of evil and darkness, and therefore suffering into our lives. A third explanation generally is that this is somebody else's responsibility, that the enemy has done this, that we, we live in a grand cosmic warfare between the forces of God and the forces of Satan, between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and ultimately the bad part of that story, someone else that we name as Satan or as the powers of the demonic or evil are responsible for bringing that evil and that suffering into human life. Others argue God can't do everything. God's loving in a perfect way, but, but not completely powerful enough to overcome the worst that we experience. Others still argue no pain, no gain. The purpose of suffering in the world is so human beings have an opportunity to move through their suffering, and as they do move through their suffering, to then grow in maturity and strength. Now, if you're like me, and you listen through to those arguments and those explanations as very simply as I shared them this morning, none of them seems to completely answer the depth of the question. And so the shocking thing, in a way, is that Isaiah doesn't back off of this. And Isaiah also not only does not back off of it, he comes full blast with the experience of suffering, with the suffering of the servant, and by description and implication, the suffering of human beings, because of how comprehensively he describes the nature of the servant's suffering. It's like there's nothing that Isaiah doesn't identify. There's no level of human experience. And you might say, well, what about something like mental illness? It doesn't seem like that's covered in this description by Isaiah. No, the, the line he experienced, the suffering of his soul, just might very cover the experience of some people who are tortured and struck with mental illness in its various manifestations. Isaiah doesn't seem to be ignorant about the depth and the holistic character of human beings and the human experience. The cat is, of course, out of the bag. When we come to Isaiah 52 and 53, if there was any doubt that this predictive prophecy was speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, we know it now. And the reason that this passage in particular resonates so deeply with our understanding of God's story in Jesus is because so many of the features of this passage, Jesus actually fulfills them in his death on the cross. He is beaten to a pulp. He is accused unjustly. He is left alone to die. And so we're pointed to Jesus. 
And the interesting parallel between Isaiah's explication of various levels of evil and suffering in the world is that it's interesting that Jesus, as the Messiah, that Jesus, as the one who would ultimately die this tortured death on the cross, in his life did also not back off of the deepest, darkest places of the human condition. If you read the Gospels carefully and you think through Jesus' instincts and the people that he connected with and the places that he went and the situations that he infused himself into willingly, one of the things that you recognize is that he touched on hunger. He touched on the experience of the poor. He touched on physical sickness. Nothing dissuaded him. Nothing grossed him out. Nothing intimidated him. He went into the midst of demon possession. He went into the very grief of several families who were struggling with the loss of a loved one. He actually even went into his own grief with the loss of his friend Lazarus. He enters into suffering fully in his ministry even as he enters into suffering fully in his death. And there's a comprehensiveness about Jesus' ministry that parallels Isaiah's description of how the servant would suffer in various ways for us and for our healing and for our salvation. I don't know who you talk to about these kinds of serious questions like the problem of suffering, but I have a barber who doesn't let me off the hook on these things. Now, it doesn't take long. He's a good hair cutter. <laughs> sort of. Um, and uh, he, um, he doesn't really take long to, to do his work, but he's a serious young man is very sensitive to his own life and extremely sensitive to the injustices and inequities of broader human life. That's not why I go to him. I go to him because he's right around the corner and he lets me, um, you know, uh, put, put my haircuts um, on a tab. It's the only place I, I, can, I, I have a tab. Just makes me feel good. I just have a tap at my barber. I paid up yesterday, which was painful. But anyway, my barber, even on the times when I'm just hoping for, a, you know, just a short espresso and a quick haircut, my barber never fails to want to engage in the deepest questions of life. And you know, kind of like a dentist, or like when you get your teeth cleaned, by a dental hygienist, although with them you can't talk back, they just lecture you. My barber always wants to engage me in a conversation, and it's usually a serious one. Recently, he was on the injustice of cancer. That was his theme. I have no idea, by the way, what he's going to talk about when I walk into the shop. And he is not you know, he's not a gifted uh, conversationalist, so he doesn't take a fancy way to, you know, introduce his topic, if you know what I mean. He just gets right to it with the first snip. And recently he wanted to talk about cancer. 
And I know a lot about his life because I've been going to him. I've basically seen him grow up. I've been going to him for over 20 years. But he told me the story about cancer in his own family, which I did not know. That his mother has struggled with cancer for 15 years. That it has basically crushed his father's spirit. That it has caused his mother, a woman of faith all her life, to doubt not only the goodness of God, but the existence of God. And it has fractured their family in several ways that he can't speak about without coming to tears. These are not easy topics. But my barber doesn't stop there. He has to go further to ask, why does God allow this to happen? Where is God in the midst of this suffering? A woman of faith, a woman who attended church regularly, a woman who believed with her whole heart, now after 15 years, just struggling to hold on, not only to human life, but struggling to hold on to her faith in God. What is God doing? What's the purpose of this? How can this be? How? And then he wants to talk about children and cancer, and it just, you know, maybe that's why I have a tab. I don't want to stay long enough to pay at the time and, you know, have to talk another 10 minutes, maybe. One of the challenges in the midst of this suffering and these deepest, darkest questions is that our culture is kind of described as a death-denying, pain-avoiding sort of culture. The language of denying death, we don't usually say someone dies, we say they passed away, as an example. Seems like we do everything on the good side and even on the darker side to avoid the reality of pain. Think of the opioid crisis that is just all of a sudden come upon us and could be worse than any of the previous drug addiction experiences that we've had in our culture before. This desire to avoid the reality of pain at any cost. An early pastor mentor of mine named Larry, who I worked with when I was a young pastor, always taught us that as pastors and as Christians, that we were to be like Jesus and to touch the pain, to touch the suffering, not to try to preach around it, not to try to avoid it, but to take it on directly. And the phrase that he used was to touch it. I'll never forget it as long as I live. He used to tell us, you have to touch the pain. You have to be fully present to people in their suffering. What does this look like? It looks a lot like Jesus, to be honest. It looks a lot like his ministry. It means, first and foremost, I think, to take people's pain and seriously, to come at it with compassion, with sensitivity, and to come at it gently, to somehow allow that pain to be transferred in love to us. Even though that we aren't in pain, because of love, because of friendship, 
to be able to feel people's pain, to actually take it on, to take on the responsibility for it, even though it's not our fault. Second thing is to take the questions that people in pain have seriously. To take those questions patiently, respectfully, thoughtfully. Like you have no choice sitting in a dentist's chair or sitting in your hair cutter's chair or sitting across the table from a close friend or visiting someone that you're introduced to in the hospital. And then the third thing to touch the pain, I think, really is given to us by Isaiah this morning. And that is simply this, to remind them that they have an opportunity to bring their pain and to bring their questions and to bring their doubts and to bring their struggle with faith to Jesus. To remind them that God is a God and if there is ever a central piece to this passage, it is this, that God is a God who is acquainted with grief who is familiar with suffering. There's a whole stream of the Christian faith that wants to avoid the cross and Jesus suffering on the cross because it doesn't seem like it's a good news, positive thinking story. It seems to get in the way of people's thinking about how to live their best, most successful life. And yet my encouragement to you is to use the cross as the center of your story. To encourage people to come to the cross. Just in the way that people came to Jesus. They brought their children to him. They brought their sickness to him. They brought their questions to him. They brought their trouble to him. They brought their hunger to him. Everything that they struggled and suffered with, they brought to Jesus. And the gospel writers take time to describe those stories for a reason for us and for our salvation and for our relationships with other people. Somehow in Isaiah's description of the suffering servant, he's saying to us, this is God's way of saving you. You might not like it. This is God's way of healing you. It may not be according to contemporary medical insight. This is God's way of showing that he is the God who from the beginning is familiar with suffering and has always been able and willing to enter into the complexity and the contradiction and the confusion of human life and its deepest and its darkest and its most difficult. This is hard work. Nick reminded us last week in really an outstanding sermon that Jesus, as the suffering servant, is Jesus the disciple. And that Isaiah is calling us to walk in the Jesus way as disciples. This is hard work because suffering is such a complex and difficult thing. If you think I solved my barber's dilemma with his mother's cancer, you're wrong. But I did say to him, 
frank. Bring your questions and bring your doubts and bring your trouble to God. Lay them down at the center of our faith. Bring them to the cross. And in some way, shape, or form, I, as your customer and your neighbor, who you let have a tab for no good reason, I believe that you and your mom and your family will experience God's healing and God's saving power. I can't predict it. I can't guarantee it. But the God that I worship is a God who is familiar with what your mom is going through. And so what Isaiah is saying, there is no level of woundedness that the servant's death cannot cover. There is no level of sinfulness and brokenness that the servant's death does not cover. There is no level of torture of the human soul that the servant's life and death does not cover. And in some way, the glory that you're searching for is found in the brokenness and the painfulness and the lovingness of the death of the servant. The interesting thing is that Jesus, the suffering servant, formed a church, formed a body, formed a group of people. And in his name, these people, and that's you and that's me, are called to go into the world and to preach good news about the suffering servants and the way he's taking care of human sinfulness. And to live good news, to offer healing, to listen to questions, to engage in conversation, to feed the hungry, to bind up the broken heart, to set the prisoners free. What the servant does, and what God has always done from the beginning, according to the scriptures, is God has always been able to touch the pain. And Jesus has touched your pain. And because he has, he has given you a calling and a capacity to touch the pain of others. Soul sickness, physical sickness, sin sickness. Go now and receive this good news, this glory of God cloaked in a suffering servant. And share this good news and live this good news of the glory of God cloaked in a suffering servant. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.